Stop me if you heard this one before. A teenage couple is out for a drive one night. The young man and woman. Have you noticed this urban legend is always kind of weirdly heteronormative? Drive out to a dedicated makeout spot. And that spot has a name. Maybe you've heard of it? It's Hangman's Road. Or Hookman's Road. Or Memory Grove. Or Lover's Lane. You get the idea. It has a sort of name that's just sinister enough to add ambiance to the story without breaking suspension of disbelief. Though, honestly, Hookman's Road might be stretching it a little bit. For me, the fateful spot has always been called Morgan's Corner. The couple drives out to their spot to do a bit of whatever they're into. It really depends on who's telling the story. If you're a kid telling this to other kids and sexuality is a distant and scary thing, then the couple is usually just kissing. If you're a teen movie director, then they're doing whatever your movie rating lets you get away with. But then something happens. In more dramatic versions, there's an emergency radio broadcast that interrupts their mood music, announcing that some sort of serial killer is loose in their approximate area and they should leave. By the way, I love the idea of a dedicated alert system for being stuck in a horror cliché. I kind of want that on my phone. Or they just finish their hanky-panky sans broadcast. Either way though, the car won't start. So our boyfriend, pinnacle of chivalry that he is, volunteers to go out walking through the night to... get gas, maybe? Maybe a tow truck. It really depends on what's wrong with the car. Also, it's kind of essential that this story takes place in an era before cell phones. Like many a classic Seinfeld episode, cell phones ruin the plot. Boyfriend leaves, but the girlfriend has to stay behind in the car. I think the general presentation is that it's safer for her there. That, I don't know, I think I'd rather walk as a pair than be left abandoned in the middle of nowhere. But the boyfriend has thought of this. He tells his girlfriend to keep the doors closed and to not open them for anyone. Also, as a precaution against irony, he tells her of a special knock that he'll do on the door, so that she can open the door for him when he comes back. Smart. Most of the time it's just the old shave and a haircut rhythm. You know, bum ba da bum 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 bum. So smart, but not too original. So the boyfriend leaves, is gone for a while, and our young lady is left alone in the locked car. In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, and without a cell phone because we're in some hazy era of 1950s-ish through the 1980s-ish? Time passes and passes until suddenly our young lady hears her boyfriend knocking. Well, someone knocking. Well, maybe knocking? You see, she's looking around and can't make out anyone through any of the car windows. Also, weirdly, the knocking isn't coming from any of the doors, but rather the roof of the car. Right over her head, to be specific. And the knocking is... wrong. 
instead of the da 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 her boyfriend established, what she's hearing is tap, tap, screech, like fingers sliding across a balloon. Just that. Tap, tap, screech. Now that's obviously not the right knock. And it's not coming from anything she can see. So our young lady clearly does not open the door. But she is terrified and has to listen to this for a while. Tap, tap, screech. Hours, in fact. Her boyfriend does not show up for hours. So all she has is hours in the dark with a non-stop tap, tap, screech. Tap, tap, screech. Tap, tap, screech. Eventually though, blue lights illuminate the darkness and a cop walks up to the car door. Yeah, I, I know, I'm not thrilled about heroic cops in this story either. The cop convinces her to get out of the car, assuring her that everything will be okay, and gently leads her away from the car. An interaction with the cops, by the way, that tells you exactly how white this young lady is. The only caveat, though, is that the young lady is warned to not turn around. She does, of course, and sees the body of her boyfriend hanging above the car. He is dead, and some part of him is dragging across the hood of the car. A shoe or a fingertip? Something that makes the distinctive tap, tap, screech. The girl screams and goes immediately insane, as one does. Man, door, hand, hook, car, door. At all. <laughs> oh, right. Hi, I'm Kari Clements, and welcome to Trans Arcana, where we take queer looks at the supernatural. Today, we're looking at Morgan's Corner, or by its more generic name, The Boyfriend's Death. And, um, before we get started, I want you to know that there's a bit of a content warning for today's episode. You see, going in, I thought this was going to be a simple episode, just digging into one regional variant of the dead boyfriend urban legend. But curiosity, combined with ADHD, can take you down some interesting paths when researching. And as a result, this episode contains references to murder, violence against women, systemic inequalities in law, and colonialism. I went looking for a simple story, but there are no simple stories. Not really. So, getting back to this Morgan's Corner story. You've heard it. Everyone has. Or you've seen a retelling of it in shows like Supernatural or I Know What You Did Last Summer. This story exists in nearly every town in America, so much so that you're probably already grumpy that I told the story wrong. I forgot to talk about the killer's hook, or the boyfriend's body wasn't hanged, it disappeared, or was dismembered in some wonderfully gory fashion. But most importantly, I got the name of the place wrong, because, as we all know, it's not Morgan's Corner. It's this other place, near where you grew up, where an actual murder took place years ago. And you're right, because that is the way the story goes. Not the hook necessarily, that changes from telling to telling, but that every telling of this story has 
two constants. One, it's always about teenagers who are murdered for making out. And two, it's always linked to some locale with a credible tragedy to add spookiness. And as far as that first one goes, well, that lends itself towards an interesting quality in scary stories. One that horror movies of the 90s picked up on with glee. The idea of teenage insecurity coupled with conservative moral policing. So, Jan Harald Brunvand has this book, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, Urban Legends and Their Meaning, and if you like books that dig into scary stories, I can't recommend this one enough. In it, he suggests that these scary stories that feature teenagers, particularly teenagers in cars, are about adolescent anxiety. The message that, hey, you have the freedom of an adult now, but that means that you don't have the protections that are usually afforded to children, speaks to a teenage anxiety about growing up. And I know I've said this before, but I want to note that I'm not saying this as some sort of secret meaning inherent in the story, but rather that the reason the story is so popular and widespread is that it speaks to a common anxiety in its listeners. It resonates with them. And that, in turn, makes them more likely to remember it and repeat it. Because, let's face it, the story is a classic, but it's not really that good of a story. It's not sticking around for quality reasons, is what I'm saying. And Brunvan's not the only one to notice this. A number of other scholars have pointed out that this story covers sex, death, and cars, making it some of the top-tier anxieties uh, for teenagers. Throw in being judged by your peers and stressing out over grades, and you'd more or less have bingo. And uh, not only that, but they're all kind of linked in the story. The teens are driving in their car to find a good makeout spot, presumably for privacy slash to avoid parental monitoring. And the making out is, depending on the telling, either a metaphor for or just straight up sex. Also straight sex, because this story has weird conservative undertones, or at least heteronormative undertones, and which conservative undertones and heteronormative under, you get the idea. That desire for privacy and sexual activity, however, is directly responsible for the death of the boyfriend. Independence, or car, leads to sex, leads to death. Man door, hand hook, car door. This isn't unique to this story, though. If you're a 70s, 80s, or 90s kid, you probably remember the non-stop deluge of teen horror movies that reframed this equation over and over and over again. Teenagers celebrate independence from their parents on a school trip, graduation party, summer vacation, camping trip. Free from parental oversight, they indulge in teenage activities including, but not limited to, sex, drugs, sex, alcohol, sex, extreme sports, or risky actions, and sometimes even sex. Inevitably, this leads to death, usually not from the activities themselves, but from some sort of lurking, murderous killer, there to punish them for their misdeeds. Usually all the sex. And usually functioning as some sort of living metaphor for conservative value judgment slash punishment. But before you despair, there is good news, innocent teens. As long as you abstain from these irresponsible behaviors, and be the good, virtuous child your parents raised you to be, there's a chance you'll survive the serial killer in the dark.
Carol J. Clover, in her book Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, suggests that this reflects a sort of conservative morality to this type of story. Don't do drugs or you'll die. Don't drink or you'll die. Don't have sex or you'll die. Listen to your parents or you'll die. And that's definitely there in the Morgan's Corner story. If those kids had been pure and virtuous, they never would have gone out to make out point and gotten murdered by that escaped serial killer. Or driven insane? Or not killed, just left terrified by a dangling hook left on the car door? <laughs> Brunvand has some interesting observations about these urban legends. That is to say, the category of story that Morgan's Corner belongs to. You know, the sort of story that happened at some point in the past, but not the distant past, the recent past. Urban legends only work if they feel recent. Otherwise, they become actual legends and we're less inclined to believe in them. And urban legends only work if you kinda sorta believe in them more than a generation in the past, and they lose their immediacy, their realness. And urban legends operate on that system of borrowed realness, in that they're generally not real themselves, but they borrow their realness by latching on to real places or things so that they feel more realistic. You see this all the time. That's why the spooky thing happened to your friend's sister's roommate in college. Or why so many hauntings happen in that one specific place that used to be a hospital that still kind of looks like a hospital? Adding real elements helps to shore up what might otherwise feel like too flimsy a story. And that makes sense, right? A story feels more real, more scary if it happened just up the road, rather than in some place. It needs a specific location. Likewise, whatever your local iteration of the boyfriend's death is, chances are that it's probably attached to some place with a history. Oftentimes, it's a place with some tragedy attached to it. Past tragedies, sadly enough, often get used as fuel for urban legends. And that can be a problem. One, because it can trivialize important or terrible things. And two, it can erase parts of the past that shouldn't be erased. Ask anyone about Morgan's Corner today, and they'll tell you it happened here in Hawaii. It happened up the Polly Road, in fact. And there was a real murder there. But the actual story behind it is more tragic than any urban legend. The story of Morgan's Corner starts with the Wilders. They're a complicated family, deeply rooted in the history of Hawaii, and not necessarily in a positive way. If you're not familiar with how Hawaii became part of the United States, I do recommend reading up on it. While this isn't really the episode for it, the short version is that a group of wealthy and powerful businessmen, with a hunger for more wealth and power, staged a coup in the Kingdom of Hawaii, then an independent nation. Working with the United States government, those businessmen overthrew Queen Liliuokalani and turned over control of the country to the United States. 
If you're versed in the history of U.S. involvement in most of South and Central America, this probably sounds very familiar. The coup was something of a joint effort, supported by a number of businessmen, politicians, and an assortment of different groups. One of these groups, the self-titled Citizens Committee of Public Safety, or just the Committee of Safety, was made up of a lot of names that anyone living in Hawaii is probably familiar with. To this day, you can see these names plastered across various roads and buildings in Hawaii. Dole, Castle, Dillingham, King, and Wilder. There are a lot of grim metaphors out there in the world, but crisscrossing a stolen land with the name of its thieves is pretty high up there. The specific Wilder involved in the coup, William Wilder Jr., was a real piece of work. Not only did he participate in a coup of the Hawaiian government, but he actively pitched it to the United States, like the businessman he was. I want to include a quote from Wilder just to give you a sense of how gross this guy was. If the United States wants the Hawaiian Islands, she can have them now and on terms more favorable than ever before offered, or than ever will be offered again. All Americans on the islands are a unit of annexation. The new provisional government and its aims are supported by nearly all of the English, as are all of the Germans. Foreign interests in Hawaii amount to about 40 million of dollars, 30 millions of which are in the hands of Americans. Honolulu is as much an American city as San Francisco itself. And yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. From serving up someone else's land like an entree, to reducing people to numbers, to units. So, yeah, just... Ugh. Wilder fucking sucked, um, is the takeaway here. And like many colonizer families throughout history, the Wilders and the Kings and others tangled up in marriages and namesakes and political alliances, so that Wilder's name carried down through the years and ultimately into buildings and places and roads. William Wilder had three sons, Gardner, Harry, and William C. Wilder III. Now, I apologize for not being able to dig up too much on William C. Wilder III. I would love to bring this to some wonderful dovetailed place where I could make some ominous implication about family curses, but this is honestly more of a ramble through history, and to blame tragedy on a curse would trivialize some very real people, and that's an awful thing to do. But no, I have no idea if William III was as god-awful and slimy as his father, William Jr., or as well-renowned as his pseudo-cousin, Samuel Wilder King. It's possible that William III lived a good life and did good things. But I don't know this. All the information I've been able to find is that he lived with his wife, Therese Adele Smith Wilder, in a small house on the Polly Road. Maybe the house was bought with inherited wealth from the Wilder fortunes? I can't say conclusively, but I imagine it was. William Wilder III died on November 26, 1926. Therese Wilder continued living in their home after her husband's death, across the street from a villa owned by Dr. James Morgan, on a stretch of the Polly Road informally named after the doctor. Morgan's Corner. Now that area, in fact the whole Polly Road is, well, there's a lot to say about it. There's so much history, both real and supernatural, tied up in the Polly, that you can bet we'll be coming back to it again later. For now though, let's focus on this moment in time, at this place. 
and this section of the road, a hairpin turn on Nu'uwanu Poly Drive. For you geolocators, it's just past the turn onto the old Poly Road. And honestly, it's kind of a gorgeous area. Nowadays, there's not much space for walking, but if you drive through, it's breathtaking. There's lush rainforest on both sides of the road, thick greenery hanging overhead, in some places forming a sort of tunnel of trees that's just beautiful. Just don't go faster than the posted speed limit of 15 miles per hour. Remember, hairpin turn. But on March 11th, 1948, all that beauty took a back seat to murder. Sorry, I know. This isn't a true crime podcast. I just wanted to try it out. A day before, on March 10th, 1948, James Majors and John Palakiko escaped from a nearby prison work crew. They'd been sentenced for petty crimes, and their plans in the short term were sort of a continuation. According to a forced confession obtained by the police, things happened like this. Their initial plan was to burglarize one of Therese Wilder's neighbors. Therese Wilder was cooking at the time, and Majors and Palakiko, hungry and noticing the smell of cooking, decided to rob her house instead. They broke in, bound Therese and gagged her. In the struggle, Therese's jaw was broken. The two men left her on a bed, where she eventually suffocated. She was found five days later by her maid, Mia Matayoshi, and gardener, Isabello Escalante. Majors and Palakiko were eventually caught and charged with first-degree murder, and sentenced to be hanged under the United States Territorial Court of Hawaii. Now, I'm not going to defend the actions of these two men. If they brutalized this woman and left her to die, that's definitely murder. The thing is, first-degree murder and second-degree murder are different categories of crime that generally carry different penalties. First-degree murder is usually interpreted as the act of murder with the deliberate intent to kill. Think the opening murder in every cop procedural you've seen on TV. And it generally carries the higher penalties, depending on jurisdiction, including life sentencing or even the death penalty. Second-degree murder, again, depending on the jurisdiction, is usually a murder that's not premeditated, but rather a consequence of the murderer's disregard for life, often in carrying out some sort of violent crime. And it usually carries a less severe penalty than first-degree murder, again, depending on the jurisdiction. So if you're thinking what Majors and Palakiko did sounds more like second-degree murder, you're not alone. There was vocal pushback from advocates in Hawaii at the time, particularly ones that felt that the sentencing revealed a double standard in Hawaii. People pointed out that the two non-white men were being prosecuted more harshly in their crime against a white woman. Critics cited the infamous Massey case, which occurred 16 years prior, in which Grace Fortescue, a wealthy white socialite, premeditatively murdered Native Hawaiian prizefighter Joseph Kahahawai. For context, Fortescue and her hired muscle, several enlisted Navy men, were charged with manslaughter and given a sentence of one hour of parole, served in the judge's office. And it wasn't just that this sentence was notoriously bullshit, but also that it caused such an outcry that martial law was almost declared due to public outcry against the sentencing. So I guess what I'm getting at is that race plays a huge role in sentencing in America. 
usually in a way that disproportionately disenfranchises non-white people. And in the case of Majors and Palakiko and the Morgan's Corner murder, the Massey case, though 16 years prior, was still very much on people's minds. A further point of consideration is that this case, the Morgan's Corner case, was presided over by Judge Karakum Buck, the first female judge in Hawaii. And I say this not to fuel some sort of misogynistic, it's an attack on men's greed, but rather to fill in the various points of reference in this situation. If we want to break out our Foucault, there's a lot to look at in the dynamics of power going on here in terms of race and gender and colonialism. In regards to the latter, it's worth noting that Judge Buck was from the continental United States, having moved to Hawaii some 10 years prior, judging two local men and with a jury sentencing them to death. When that sentencing came through, it was appealed by Harriet Ann Buslog, another mainland transplant to Hawaii. Buslog was an attorney with a reputation for representing the poor and disenfranchised. Buslog also taught at the University of Hawaii, worked with the unions, pushed back against the sugar plantations and their treatment of workers, fought to abolish the death penalty in Hawaii, and has received the Alan F. Saunders Civil Liberties Award from the ACLU. Honestly, I think she might be my hero. And I think she's an interesting foil in this context to Judge Buck. Both legal professionals moved to Hawaii from the mainland, both lived in Hawaii for about 10 years before the case, and while on the one hand you have Judge Buck, who made huge advancements for women, serving as the first female assistant district attorney in Hawaii, her career was filled with actions like leading raids against local moonshiners. While on the other hand you've got Buslog, who's more or less championing the people that Buck is attempting to lock up or, in this case, execute. So it came to happen that minutes, minutes before Majors and Palakiko's executions, the governor of Hawaii, at the time, Orrin E. Long, issued a stay of execution when Harriet Ann Buslog was able to find evidence that Majors and Palakiko had given forced confessions. That is, confessions that were coerced through violence, torture, or deceit by the police. Anyone surprised that the cops forced a confession out of people? So, given the fact that the forced confession violated legal proceedings, and raised the question of whether or not Majors and Palakiko actually did it in the first place, their executions were stayed by Governor Long, and later commuted to 90 years in prison by Governor Samuel King, and then further committed to parole and released by Governor John Burns in 1962, resulting in 14 years in prison for the two, each. John Palakiko eventually violated parole and died in prison in 1974 at age 46. James Majors worked with youth outreach and was discharged from his parole in 1968. And while he sought a full pardon in 1966, he didn't receive it. He died of natural causes in 2009. No ghosts. No dire warnings from beyond the grave. Just death. Death and persecution. Old money and cops, gender and race, the law and justice, and none of it coming together in any sort of satisfying way. There's not a single connection to teenagers in cars. Just murky tragedy from start to finish. Therese Wilder was absolutely a victim of a senseless crime. James Majors and John Palakiko, whether or not they committed that crime, were absolutely treated unfairly by a colonizing judicial system. 
with Judge Buck and Harriet Buslog working at odds within that judicial system, pushing for justice from their own perspectives. It would be easier if there was at least one ghost. Something to distract us from what is essentially just tragedies overlapped on each other. That would be easier. If some bloody specter appeared to claim responsibility for the murder, or to frame this all as some dire consequence of colonizing, that would be an easier story to tell. But telling that story would do an injustice to the real events, and erase the real people, their efforts, and their lives. And that's maybe the problem with the borrowed realness of the urban legend. When you reduce a real event, especially a tragic one, to a footnote in some other story, all of those real people just end up erased so that our spooky story can just feel a little spookier. When the real horror, the tragedies and injustices of the past, get left hanging on the door. Today's episode drew from so many sources. Op-eds from William J. Wilder were reprinted by Nupepa Hawaii. Check them out, please. They're a fantastic archival project of Hawaiian newspapers. Christine Hitt's Honolulu Magazine article on Morgan's Corner was brought up, as was Lisa Asato and Deborah Barayuga's Honolulu Star Bulletin article on majors in Palakiko. We used Cornell Law's resources on legal definitions, Jan-Harald Brunvan's book, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, American Urban Legends and Their Meanings, Mari Matsuda's book, Called From Within, Early Women Lawyers of Hawaii, Carol J. Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, and our cover art was created by the Wombo Dream app. If you enjoyed this episode of Trans Arcana and want more of our mixture of queer theory and occult lore, you can follow us on Twitter at Trans Arcana. That's T-R-A-N-S-A-R-C-A-N-A at twitter.com. And maybe think twice about attaching that next ghost story to a real tragedy. <laughs>